So we're going to read uh, from Ezekiel 34. We're going to kind of hop around a little bit. It'll just be uh, verses 11 through 16, and then we'll skip down to verses 20 through 24. You can follow along on the screen, all there for you. Um, Ezekiel 34, 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord. Amen. So growing up, um, the first Bible I was ever given, I, I was apparently given this Bible the day I was born. Somebody brought it to me when I was in the hospital, and there on the cover of this Bible was this like idyllic illustrated scene. It was a, a King James version. It was all white. And this, this little illustration was of a lion and a lamb laying down next to each other, right? That, that image from Revelation. It's this beautiful sort of picture, but it was much more corny than that, right? That the lamb was this fluffy, cuddly little ball of wool, right? And all of my childhood, I think, I kind of imagine that's what sheep were like. That was my impression of sheep, this little cuddly creature, right? And, and somewhere along the way, growing up in a, a small agricultural town, I was exposed to the less than cuddly truth about sheep, right? I was around people who, who, who raised these creatures, right? And I realized, like, sheep make tremendous messes, Right? Sheep are, are kind of disgusting, right? And the work of a shepherd is, is like painstaking and, and difficult because of this, right? And like the first time you see a sheep off in the distance, like maybe you can still maintain this like fairy tale about what sheep are like. Maybe you can still continue to believe the lie that they're cute and cuddly. But as you get closer, you begin to smell things, right? As you get closer, you begin to realize the fluffy little ball of wool is, is, is covered in mud and 
excrement. Like there's this whole process. Like we always think of sheep and, and sheep being shorn, you know. We, we have to get their wool, right? But there's this whole process that nobody ever talks about, which is before they can ever begin to shear a sheep, they have to, to remove all of the disgusting bits off of them first that they've just gotten used to. They're okay with it. They walk around in their own filth for months. It's messy work, right? You can't romanticize that. Sheep are not what, what you thought they were, right? And every time I, I, I come to a passage like this that is so focused on this idea of, of sheep and shepherds, I feel like I have to kind of like ask myself or, or wrestle with this idea of that Old Testament imagery. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? This image that, that I am a sheep and God is my shepherd. Because it's, it's, it's like a less than flattering idea that, that I am a sheep. And Ezekiel 34 just draws it out. It's the longest passage in Scripture using this metaphor. It's the most extended use of the image, right? Over and over again. I am a sheep in need of a shepherd. This is the portrayal of the people of God. This is what we're like. Now, Obviously, we can take this one direction, right? We can just kind of run with it, take that idea that if we are like sheep, you know, who are ignorant, disgusting, stubborn little creatures, right? Then we have to accept that humanity is just as terrible. We're just awful, disgusting little creatures. We're stubborn and difficult and we're messy. And sure, like that, that would be true. If you've had any experience with humans, you know that to be true, but I don't intend for us to go in that sort of like self-deprecating direction, right? Like, because if you read the Old Testament, there are a lot of metaphors God uses for his people, right? This happens over and over again. God will say that, that we are his children and he is our father. God will say that we are his bride and he is our groom, right? It's not all so unflattering as this image. So you can't take this image and be like, man, God's opinion of humanity is pretty low. No, that's not the case. That's not what it's trying to communicate. But it, it is an image that I think we have to revisit to get to that sort of like gritty, visceral reality. Because in our culture, the notion of being a sheep is still a hard thing to accept, Right? Like, it's, that, that's a word that's thrown around as an insult, especially in our political climate, right? It's, it's one of these words that, that people throw around. To be called a sheep, to accept that you're a sheep, to be sheepish, I mean, it's, it's not a positive trait. In an, an individualistic, self-reliant, self-made kind of culture, we prefer to see ourselves as strong, as, as fearless. I'm in need of no one's help, right? I don't follow I'm not a sheep, I lead, right? This is the way we think of things. Like no charismatic motivational speaker, think about it, is ever going to try to draw a crowd by inviting them to embrace their sheepness. No, no, they're gonna teach you how to be an alpha, right? There are sheep, but then there are wolves. That's what you're supposed to be, a lion. This all makes sense to us. This is the way our culture thinks. This is the way we think to some degree. When everybody else is, is a sheep, you have to lead. You follow no one. You lead others, right? You're a wolf. You're a lion. You're a sleek. You are powerful. You are impressive. This is who you're supposed to be, right? That's how you draw the crowd. To see myself as a sheep 
is to accept that I'm in need of a shepherd. That I, I don't know everything. That I'm not self-reliant and I'm not self-made and I can't make all the best decisions for myself, right? I need a shepherd. And it's not an easy thing. It means I'm, I'm willingly submitting to the authority of somebody else over me, right? That is uncomfortable for us. I'm acknowledging that I don't always know what is best for myself. That's what it means to be a sheep, right? It's not an easy thing to accept, but, but what Ezekiel is getting at is that if we can accept it as God's people, right? If I can acknowledge the painful truth about myself, that I am a sheep in need of a shepherd, the thing that Ezekiel is saying, that Isaiah will say, that Zechariah will say, that King David is saying most famously in Psalm 23, if I can accept this beautiful sort of reality... Ezekiel wants us to know you have a shepherd who is good. But you have to be able to accept this, this reality. You have to accept the truth about yourself and give yourself to him. You have to be willing to be shepherded. And it's, it's not simple. But Ezekiel says, you have a good shepherd, right? He's talking to this group of people who've been through so many painful things. And he's saying, but you still have a good shepherd, but as good as all that is, where I think we have to, to kind of like press in is that all of this is further complicated by the fact that when we submit ourselves to the good shepherd, we know that comes with a bit of baggage, right? We aren't just asked to submit to Jesus as our shepherd, to God as our shepherd. We're asked to submit to human shepherds. It's a thing that we've experienced throughout the course of our lives. We submit to human shepherds who inevitably fail us. They have inevitably failed us again and again. Right? Like it begins when we're children. You're born into a family that you have no control of with parents who are supposed to shepherd, but who may or may not actually feel equipped for that task. Maybe they're just like you. Maybe they feel like when they left the hospital, nobody gave them any instructions and didn't realize how terrible they were at it, you know? We've all felt that if you've ever had children, right? All parents are, are given this task, right? And inevitably, we fail at it. And there are a lot of people in the church who didn't just experience the normal sort of level of parental failure as shepherds. We're all going to. That's almost the intent, the expectation, but... Many people experienced at home abuse and neglect from parents who were either heavy-handed and hurtful or really passive and indifferent to their needs because they were too obsessed with their own needs. They were too overwhelmed with their own needs to be able to care for their children very well. So there are a lot of people who are wounded by that. The very first shepherds they've ever known have created for them this deep level of, of baggage at a societal level, the same thing happens, right? People who are put in positions of authority that we vote into these positions of authority are notorious for their corruption. They're notorious for being embroiled in scandal. Uh, if they're not yet, they will be at some point. Just give them time, right? We as a society are so deeply cynical of anybody in a position of authority or leadership. We expect in politics this is how it will go. We have very little trust in government officials or politicians, and it just kind of feeds that thoroughly individualistic idea that has, you know, taken root in us culturally. 
We are our own authority. We follow no one. We make our own decisions. This is what we do. And our experience in the church is largely the same, right? I think everyone has some story of pastoral scandal. Everybody has some story, whether they experienced personally or somebody in their family experienced it or some good friend of theirs experienced it. They've seen something terrible happen, right? Some pastors found guilty of embezzlement or abuse or cruelty or adultery or fill in the blank. All of these things come to the surface, right? And it becomes really hard for us to accept that I need a shepherd if shepherds are like that, right? It's hard for me to accept that I need a shepherd when I have become cynical about all of the shepherds I have ever known, And so I think for a lot of people in church, we live these very isolated lives. We operate as our own authority. We decide what is best for us right by ourselves. That's the way we function, right? The sense that we have, I think, as believers and as non-believers in our culture is, I can't trust anybody else. They will inevitably fail me, right? But I can trust myself. (laughs) Right. We have this deep faith in ourselves, We trust ourselves and no one else. And Ezekiel's situation is the same. The people of Israel have been through the same thing. Israel's history is full of stories of politicians and leaders and priests and, and prophets, kings, shepherds who failed them again and again, right? I always think of, uh, of Eli, not my son. Eli, the priest in 1 Samuel There's this priest, he's a a good man, a good priest, a good leader. But his children, who by their relation to him, will also become priests. Hophni and Phinehas are the most famous. These sons of his are not so good, right? They're corrupt. The story is that that when people brought sacrifices to them, when the, the meat was still being boiled, they would come and they'd, have someone plunge a fork deep into it. They take the finest parts of the meat before it had ever been offered to God, right, in an act of worship. They were given part of the sacrifice anyway. It was theirs, but they took even more for themselves, and they left very little. They slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle. They took advantage, right? It was very clear to everyone there, and Eli didn't know what to do about it. He didn't know how to to confront them. And 1 Samuel says that they were sons of worthlessness, literally. They were sons of, of wickedness, right? My favorite translation is the NIV. It says they were, they were scoundrels. I don't know about you guys. I just, I like any time we get to use the word scoundrels in church. I feel like we'd all be better if somebody would mix it in a little bit more often. Like the next town hall meeting, if somebody, just throw out the word scoundrel, please. More people will come. It'll be more enjoyable. Somebody just say the word scoundrel every once in a while. This is the sons of Eli. This is the priests and the prophets that the people of Israel have known. Throughout their history, they lead them to worship other gods. They neglect the poor. Their own kings are guilty of this kind of thing, right? The most powerful figures in their society are morally reprehensible. They're idolatrous, and they lead the people into all of this. And the sin that they were led into by their shepherds results 
in the most terrifying and painful experience of their history, the exile. They find themselves carried off as slaves to live in a foreign land. The Assyrians destroy the north, the the Babylonians, the south, and carry them off. And the opening of chapter 34 is acknowledging this whole problem. We didn't read the beginning of chapter 34, but the sense that we're given in Ezekiel is that God has has just had enough. God is as sick of this this failure by shepherds as we are. God is, is mourning the same thing that we mourn over and over again. But instead of cynicism, Instead of of living as our own authority, Ezekiel says, God will shepherd you. No, you've not been able to trust anyone else. Yes, everybody else has failed you, but God will be your shepherd, right? As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, Ezekiel says, so I will look after my own sheep. He'll bring them out of the nations where they've been scattered, literally, And he'll bring them back to the mountains of Israel. He says they're going to graze on the mountains of Israel at home, right? He's going to search for the lost and the stray, right? This is the the kind of imagery that Jesus is using. This is where it all comes from. Jesus knows Ezekiel. Jesus knows Zechariah. Jesus has read the Psalms, right? And he's taking this and he's, he's just kind of running with it. When Jesus talks about leaving the 99 and going after the one, he's He's calling back to Ezekiel. But it's not all, all like warm and fuzzy, right? He keeps going a little bit further. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Like there's, there's something about it, right? God has in mind not just to rescue those who've been oppressed, who've been neglected and abused, but God has in mind to thump those who have victimized his people. God has in mind to shepherd with justice. And he has no interest in doing this in just some like metaphorical or figurative sense, right? God doesn't say, I am your shepherd in this sort of poetic kind of way, in this figurative kind of way. When we get down to the the last few verses of the passage, he says he's going to send his servant David. God doesn't just say, I am your shepherd in this sort of metaphorical, uh, poetic way. He says, I'm going to send a very real shepherd, my, my servant David, and he will be your shepherd, right? He's going to send a shepherd, right? One who they can know, one who they can look in the eye, a shepherd who will walk alongside them, who will make real and concrete this desire that is at the heart of God, which is to bring those who have strayed, those who have wandered, those who've been scattered back to himself. God says, I'm going to send one who will shepherd my people. I will be your God and my servant David will be prince among you. You'll have a new kind of shepherd. And you can imagine, right? Like, think about that. Like, how encouraging that would have been. Or on the other hand, how infuriating it would have been. According to where you sit in this narrative. When Jesus identifies himself with what Ezekiel is talking about. Some are infuriated and some are excited and encouraged, right? In Matthew 9, the picture that we're given, Jesus says that when he sees the crowd, 
They're like sheep without a shepherd. This is the way Jesus always sees the people. They are sheep without a shepherd, and he is the shepherd that they so desperately need. This is the way he's always understood himself, right? But in, in John 10, there's this interesting moment. Jesus is in a really precarious position. This incredible thing has just played out. A miraculous healing in John 9. The man who was born blind, who you've probably heard the story of. This man is healed, and some people are just hyped about it. He certainly is, but the Pharisees are bothered by what they're hearing. Same way people in our culture can be sometimes. Like, we hear about that sort of stuff, and we're immediately a little skeptical. Like, what, what do you mean he was healed? What do you mean that the man who was blind from his birth is now able to see? Like, what do you, what do you mean exactly? Who is this person who did it, right? And so they're so bothered by it that they question the man. They bring him in and they literally interrogate him, right? They're so scandalized by what's going on. They question him and eventually they come to the conclusion that it was his sin that brought all this on himself, the reason he was blind is because he was a sinner, they say. They don't like his answers. He keeps coming back at them, trying to explain that, that none of this is wrong, that Jesus is good. And eventually, they become so angry with him that they throw him out of the synagogue. They won't allow him to come and worship with them any longer, right? And it's in that sort of moment, in John 10, in front of that group of Pharisees, who had orchestrated all of that, who had cast this man out. It's in front of all of them that Jesus begins to portray himself famously as a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is the kind of shepherd he will be. He's not like, he says, one of the, the hired shepherds. No, these are his sheep. And it's only the man who these sheep truly belong to that would be willing to lay down his life for them. When danger comes, the hired hand will, will run away. But Jesus says, I'm not that shepherd. Like men like, like Bartimaeus, this man born blind, have been excluded and ignored and despised for years because they couldn't figure out what had brought all of this terrible stuff on them and it was easy just to kind of distance themselves from it. The Sadducees, the ruling sort of almost royalty of, of Judaism, they had allied themselves with the Romans because it was convenient, right? It made their lives a little bit easier Right? So the Sadducees and the high priests, they were all attached to the empire, really. All to the neglect of their own people. The Pharisees recognized there was something wrong with that, but their solution was so severe. They placed such a heavy yoke on everyone in their pursuit of righteousness that almost no one could be included. Everyone found themselves on the outside looking in. 
And here is Jesus saying, I have other sheep, and I must bring them also. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that Ezekiel is talking about. I'm the one who's bringing the scattered and the wandering and the stray, the abused and the neglected back into the flock. I'm the one going after them. And that's beautiful if you're one of the ones who finds themselves on the outside. But it's not good news to everyone who hears it. Like they hear what Jesus is saying and they're deeply insulted, right? They don't receive it well because if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is the good shepherd, then what does that make them? They're the abusive, the negligent shepherds, the ones who have have put the people of God in this position. They are the unjust shepherds that Ezekiel was speaking of. It puts them in a pretty hard spot when Jesus says that he's the good shepherd. It's hard for them to receive it, right? And I think if we're being completely honest, like it's kind of hard for us to receive it in some way. It is either good news or it is bad news according to how you see it, right? Yes, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's bringing us into his rest. He's bringing us into his peace. But if he's a shepherd, that still means I'm a sheep. I still have to accept this this painful sort of reality. To experience the good shepherd, I've got to accept this truth about myself that I cannot fix myself, that I can't make myself better I'm not an island, I'm not self-made, I'm not self-reliant, that I need someone else's authority in my life. I have to accept it. To follow Jesus, to acknowledge that he's a good shepherd, means that I'm acknowledging I can't trust myself above everyone else, that I'm just as untrustworthy as everyone else, that I fail just as much as everyone else does, and I will inevitably fail myself. I am not self-reliant. I am perpetually in need of a good shepherd. I have to accept it. But for many of us, again, our experiences, these things we've you know, just been constantly inundated with from our culture, our own experiences, you know, in, again, at home, in politics, in the church, wherever it might be, they make us far too cynical for something like that, for being able to trust Jesus as a shepherd. We only trust ourselves, right? And I think that is why we as a society presently are on this journey always towards self-discovery. Everything is about knowing and understanding yourself. It's about being a fully realized self. I need to know myself in order to really find peace, right? I have to find who I really am. I have to find where my identity really lies. And once I find that, then I will be better, right? And maybe... Maybe, right, I can submit to Jesus as a shepherd. That doesn't sound that crazy to me, okay? Because I can keep Jesus at arm's length, right? I kind of like the idea of a metaphysical shepherd. I like the idea of a shepherd in the abstract, right? That I don't have to look in the eye day after day. So maybe I can submit to Jesus because I can always keep him at arm's length. But then there's this other thing, right? It's a lot more difficult for us to submit ourselves to somebody else's authority, to a friend, to somebody in our family who's telling us um, that what we're doing is not wise, telling us that the thing that we want to do is, is probably not healthy or good for us, right? It's hard to submit to a, 
a pastor when you feel like you've been betrayed by one. It, it, it's hard to submit to a leader when you feel like you've been hurt by them over and over again. It is hard to submit to a small group leader, a mentor, a discipling person in your life, right? That can be a really painful thing, right? We become so cynical about it. Maybe Jesus, but everybody else, I just, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in, right? And in our moment, I think we have become much more comfortable with the idea of like submitting to an advocate. We're looking for an advocate. We're looking for a friend who sees things like we do. We're willing to submit to them. We're willing to submit to the person who affirms the things that we want and that we believe. They affirm our ideas, our opinions. That's great. Right? I'm, I'm good with that. Many of us, I think, are, are very comfortable with the idea of a therapist. It's one of the coolest things about our moment. People are, are saying that. Like, my parents would never have told anybody, even in church, even in our family, that they were in therapy. Never. And we just talk about it like it's normal. It's all very normal for us. How beautiful is that, right? And we like the idea of a therapist because that's another thing that we can kind of twist, Right? We like a therapist. And listen, what I'm saying is not that you shouldn't go to therapy. You've heard Jonathan and I say over and over again, please seek counsel. Go to therapy. It's good, right? But we have to acknowledge this. What's so nice about therapy, what I think very often we're so comfortable with about therapy, is that a good therapist doesn't tell you what to do. That's what's a little bit, you know, unnerving about it. You get there and you're like, give me advice. Give me steps one through seven to a better life. And I, I will do A, B, and C for you. Just tell me what I need to be doing. And they're just like, nah, man, that's not how this works, right? They're trying to shepherd you, right? Lead you so that you can find the truth yourself, right? To find what you need to be doing, right? That's what a, a good therapist is going to do. And that's, that's great, right? Because it gives me yet another opportunity, another way to avoid actually submitting to them. I don't have to submit to their authority. I can keep them at arm's length, right? I pay them. And if at any moment their advice makes me uncomfortable, bothers me, and I don't mean in the sense that they, they do something wrong, I mean in the sense that I just become uncomfortable with the direction they're taking this. The things they're saying I don't agree with. I just take my money and I go somewhere else. I just move on, right? I'm just a customer after all, right? I'm a paying customer and I can take my business elsewhere, right? And that safely leaves some of the authority in my hands. Or we can listen to them and say, well, this is, this is what my therapist says I should do. And then we just continue to live our lives as if nothing has changed, right? Like that idea of having somebody in my life who has a veto power, the ability to upend whatever decision I'm about to make, that is, that is deeply uncomfortable for most of us. That's scary. And so very often, what do we do? We make the safe choice. We continue to operate as our own authority. We cynically point out all that is wrong with those that we might otherwise have had to follow, to submit to. We dwell on the failures of all of these leaders we've known, dwell on all, all, the, all the, the failures of these shepherds, and we ignore our own. And we continue to lie to ourselves saying that we can trust ourselves, that we can make our own decisions, that we know what's best. And we're so naive. Because we forget that likely, if you can't submit to anybody else's authority, you probably can't submit to Jesus's either. Like that's a really hard thing to accept. 
if you live in this place where you're perpetually functioning as your own authority, you can't submit to anybody else, how, if you can't submit to somebody who's in front of you, are you ever going to be able to submit to Jesus who's not face-to-face with you all the time? How can you submit to someone that you don't see when you can't even submit to someone you do see day after day after day? Like, we have to learn it. Jesus is saying you have to accept it. Because the longer we do this, the longer we perpetuate what Jesus is mourning. We are sheep without a shepherd, and we wander aimlessly. We are scattered, and we don't even realize it. We are covered in our own filth, and we don't even see it because we don't want anybody else to point it out to us. Instead, we want people that will speak in niceties, cliches, and we feel good about that. In all the years that I, I've been in the church, like what's interesting to me is like the thing that has bothered me the most as a leader, as somebody who was a part of the church, the most damage I've ever seen done is not by people who are sinful, who are struggling, who don't do what they're supposed to do, who are messed up. No, it's not those people. It's the people who don't know how to submit to anyone. It's the people who don't know they are sheep without a shepherd. They always do the most damage. Over and over again, I will, I will take the most sinful and broken people. But the one who cannot submit, who cannot hear from anybody else, they are the most dangerous. They always do the most damage. Give me the one who knows they need a shepherd, not just me. The one who knows they need the good shepherd. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is what you need to see. Stop being cynical. Learn to trust. Not yourself, but somebody else. Because if you can learn to trust somebody else, then it becomes a little bit easier to trust Jesus. That he's actually who he says he is. And as the band comes and we move toward the table, that's the invitation. Like, learn to trust. Let go of your cynicism. It doesn't mean you have to, to ignore all of the, the failures you've seen happen in the church and in society, at, at home. But learn to trust that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He's a good shepherd. He's trustworthy. That you don't know what's best for yourself and Jesus has better intentions for you than you have for yourself. And you don't realize that yet, but he does. Don't operate forever isolated as your own authority, self-made and self-reliant. No. Be a sheep because you have a good shepherd. Learn to follow. Learn to accept that God has sent a good shepherd. Yeah, let's pray. Father, I, I ask that you would that you just speak powerfully that truth over us, Lord, that you would, as our shepherd, lead us into rest this morning, that you'd lead us into peace, that you'd lead us into healing, because uh, we acknowledge it's just easier to live with this fairy tale that we can trust ourselves, that we know what's best for us all the time, um, that we are self-made, that we don't need anything. 
Help us to accept, Lord, that you are a better shepherd than we can be for ourselves. Yeah, give us a deep and resounding hope that those who've been scattered, that those of us who've wandered, that those of us who feel kind of like strays, you're inviting us back. Yeah, as we come to your table, Lord, we pray we would find ourselves experiencing your presence in a very real way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, come in these moments as the band plays. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and then you can move back to your seats. And then I'll, I'll come up and we'll, we'll do all of this together.